If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Durrumpel. And we still have with us, yes, we've locked the doors, we've barred the windows. <laughs> Simon C. Montefiore is still very much our hostage today. <laughs> and we left you on a, an absolute cliff edge last time. We're talking about Catherine the Great. And Catherine's reign, which had started so promisingly, she'd managed to get together disparate parts of Russia, get them to be on her side to love her even to change their lives for the better and she faces the first test which could end everything and this is uh, we sort of took you to Pugachev's rebellion so her son Paul doesn't think his mother or a woman should be reigning there are lots of other people who are of the same mind but what would a woman know ovaries no they don't mix with power that's terribly combustible so there's a whole momentum that is building up against Catherine and what happens next Simon Seabag wants you well, there's also the war against the Ottomans, against the Turks, that is now in stalemate. So she's got a huge war, a peasant rebellion, a son that wants to throw her out, all sorts of enemies at her court. And her lover, her old lover, Orlov, is estranged. They're a bit tired of each other and their relationship is on the rocks. What can she do? She begins to think about um, somebody who's been in love with her since he helped to seize power in 1762. And you may remember from Tuesday that riding on the back of the carriage when she sees power was a young guardsman of 22, Grigory Potemkin. Fantastic hair, better hair than me, she says. Yeah, she, she was always jealous of his hair. He had wonderful hair. I know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> you must know that feeling too, Steve. <laughs> hair is completely irrelevant to, um, to, to us, isn't it, William? Um, but he had the most beautiful head of hair. She said he was, she was jealous of it. And he was six foot three. He was a scholar of many languages a scholar of the, of, of the Bible, and he was a young soldier. I mean, very young. He joined at 11. I mean, that's like a 
baby. All children were signed up for their guards regiments very young in, in the system. And but he was he was a boy who'd grown up in Smolensk province with five sisters. You write in your book that he spent his time drinking, gambling, and lovemaking. Yes. And also fell into debt as a result. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> he loved women. He'd had a fight, possibly with the Orloffs about Catherine the Great, and he'd possibly been hit with a billiard cube, which made him lose his eye. And he was known as Cyclops by his enemies, wasn't he? The young man who'd originally been known as Alcibiades for his cleverness and beauty after the Athenian statesman was now known as Cyclops. But whenever he saw Catherine the Great in the corridors of the Winter Palace for the last 10 years, he would fall to his knees, grab her hand and say, I'm passionately in love with you, which could be annoying, of course, but Catherine was charmed. Yeah, and can I just can I just say? I mean, did it have anything to do with? <laughs> yes, I'm you looking know at the same you know note. Uh, I have to say, I'm going to bring in Caleb at this point. Our, our wonderful producer has written in the notes. Just a moment. <laughs> you and I both read the same stuff, and we both circle the same phrase: <laughs> his elephantine sexual equipment. Simon Seabag Montefiore, explain yourself. What is the primary source for this, Seabag? <laughs> I mean, what is this? There are, source, there are, there are sources that talked about his, his famous manhood. So um, you're right to challenge it. But let's just say he was extremely well known um, for his, um, his legendary virility. Yeah, okay, okay. It, was, it was well known in the guards. It was talked about in the guards, and that's how we that's how we know about it. But she'd always rejected him because she had all off, and he was also intellectually extremely masterful. So she couldn't. She'd always hesitated whether to have him because he was a, he was going to be a problem. You know, he was going to be a political challenge. He wasn't going to be someone who wanted to just get rich. Were the Orlovs as bright as as Potemkin, or were they bright at all? No, none of them was bright as Potemkin, and Potemkin was just an extraordinary character. And people later said. You know, the, re- the reason why they fell in love is because they're exactly alike. And they, and they appreciated that. And they often said, we're twin souls. We're exactly the same. Do you, do you, have, some, you have some love letters between them, don't you? Well, what I thought I'd do is just tell you how he came to come back. So it's, he'd gone off to make his name in this war, which was such a big problem for Catherine. And when he was there, she thought about all of this and she decided to write him a letter. And he was um, besieging a town called Silistra, Silistria, which is, um, which is in the Danube, uh, near the Danube. And she sent him this letter. So just imagine you're receiving this letter. You're a young man of 33, a young Overseeing general. Overseeing the artillery of the Danube. Overseeing the cavalry of the artillery. And you get this letter. Dear General Potemkin, you are probably staring at Silistria with no time to read letters. Since I'm keen to preserve brave, talented and clever individuals, I beg you to take care of yourself and remain in safety. Then she goes on, when you read this, you may well ask yourself why I have written it. And so you may confirm with this confirmation of my way of thinking about you and that I will always remain your most benevolent Catherine. Aww. Yeah, so what do you think he does when he gets this letter in Bulgaria or Romania or wherever he, he is? He says, look, mates, look, <laughs> she fancies me and she's the most powerful woman in the world. Woohoo! I'm well yeah. on the way. He saddled his horse and he gallops for St. Petersburg. He gets permission to leave and he, he, he heads for St. Petersburg. He arrives in St. Petersburg. Which presumably is no small journey. It's a thousand Gosh. miles. He, didn't, he arrives there and pretty much immediately they become lovers. They find that they are amazingly well-suited. And this is the sort of letter that she sends him, talking about love. I woke at 5 a.m. today thinking about you. I have given strict rules to the whole of my body, she writes to him. 
to the last hair to stop showing you the slightest sign of love. Oh, Monsieur Potemkin, what a trick you've played to unbalance a mind previously thought to be one of the best in Europe. What a disgrace. Catherine II, the victim of this crazy passion. One more proof of your supreme power over me. Well, mad letter, go to where my hero dwells. That's lovely. How much older is she than him? She's 10 years older than him. So she's she's 43 in her prime, and he's 33 in his prime, in a way. So it's a great um, meeting, and they're both mature, and she immediately puts him on the council. She soon appoints him to be Minister of War. He negotiates the peace with the Turks, um, the Treaty of Kujak Kankara, which gives Russia huge gains in South Ukraine and makes the Khanate of Tartary of Crimea independent of the Ottomans so that it's now vulnerable. Is this the treaty she says is the happiest day of her life or something? There's one letter she writes, yes. right? And she also she's so relieved that it's all gone through. And Potemkin takes over all these things. Remember, he's like an untrained general. And crucially, one of her great ambitions uh, is to retake Constantinople for the Orthodox. Yes. And it gives her the right to protect the Christians of the East. This is a crucial thing in the next century. Yes. And this is something that Potemkin actually kind of invents. And it's called the Greek Project, William, which is exactly what you're talking about. And the Greek Project is, is, a, is a project that he comes up with and puts into this treaty because he writes some of it. And it is gives them the, their dream is to take Constantinople and put a Russian prince on the throne of it. There's so much that follows in the 19th century, isn't there, which comes from this, which may never have happened but for Potemkin adding yes. this. and the Crimean War, for example. You have Russia stuffing the monasteries in Jerusalem full of Orthodox monks. Athos becomes a major imperial Russian training centre. You go today to the Russian monastery in Athos, there's, there's, there's room for about 4,000 monks or 5,000 monks who are kind of ready to go for the Holy Land and wage war on behalf of orthodoxy. This is a big deal. So she's head over heels with him and he is, I mean, in your words, uh, Russia's greatest ever minister, which is, you know, quite quite the accolade. Greatest Romanov minister of the 300 and whatever it is, 24 years that they ruled. She is head over heels in love with him, but do the Russian people love him? What do they think of him? Well, the Russian people don't matter. But remember, um, this is an autocracy ruled by an aristocracy. Many of the Russian people themselves are 90% peasants, and most of those are serfs. So what really matters is the aristocracy. And the aristocracy, some of them are very jealous of Potemkin. Many of them regard him as a total upstart. But many people also recognize that he is remarkable. And the Orlovs, for example, are very jealous because they, they lose political power. But they also recognize that he's a very talented person. See, Bag, there's some debate, isn't there, about whether they're actually secretly married or not? I mean, I'm almost certain, as much as you can be, that they are secretly married. And there are many love letters. Here's one that says, my dear soul, cher epouse, um, darling husband, Darling husband, come up and snuggle with me, if you please. And she says, and here she says to him, Grishenka, she calls him. She calls him many nicknames, like Lion of the Jungle, Tiger, Cossack. <laughs> um, and she often calls him Golden Cock Pheasant. Oh. Does that have the same connotation in, no, in Russian? No, leave it, leave and it. Gonna, and she calls him Golden <laughs> Cockerel. And I'm not going to say any more than that. No, but that's goes, fine. But it goes, back to your it. Earlier, it goes back to your earlier question. Yes, no, thank you. I think asked and answered now with that. Um, but, but doesn't Olof then get a little bit sort of um, jealous and jittery about yes, this? Yes, there's a Does big he sulk not... about Olof, but she doesn't, 
get rid of this is her genius is that she doesn't get rid of Orloff. she doesn't dismiss all of all remains on the council all of remains um, a very very senior person and she she um, piles him high with with souls and estates. Sure, but he also tries to win her back with the Orloff diamond. I mean, we've we talked about this. You know, we talk. You know, we're obsessed with diamonds. This is the Orloff diamond, of course. Yes. Did you not get that? I didn't put I, the two, two together. Oh, bless your little heart. Oh, I love so, that. Uh, so, from what I know, from what I know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that you know, the, he he so much wants to win her back. Maybe he wants a bit more of the uh, the glory that he had before and the power in the court. But he presents her with something that she had always wanted, which was this egg-shaped, extraordinary, clear, beautiful diamond, the Orloff diamond. Which they think is the great mogul diamond that is seen by Tavernier in Aurangzeb's crown jewels, and it's bigger than the Koh-i-Noor. Don't pretend you knew this story now. Don't I pretend. I know this story. I'd rather it was the same Orloff. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, they, they, the, the truth of the matter is that they actually, first of all, he's buying it with money that she's given him. Don't forget that. <laughs> Oh my god, he's a typical bad boyfriend. He's terrible. Oh borrow a fiver. I'm gonna get you some flowers at the petrol station. And also she she gives him amazing presents too. Yeah. And she piles him higher presents. It's a lot of present giving here. But the point is, Potemkin is now in control. They secretly marry, and you can see that in their letters. She now starts to call him darling husband in their letters. And also he does something which is unique in the whole story of the whole dynasty, which is he basically has access to the treasury like a, a ruler. So he basically becomes Kozar now. Right. Is there any other character like him in Romanov history? There's no other character like him in the, in the whole history of Rus- Russian power. And she writes to him, another, here's another love letter, for you I'd do the impossible. I'd even be your humble maid or lowly servant, she says. Grishenka, it's impossible for me to change towards you. Can one love anybody after having loved you? So the point is that... They have this amazing relationship, but now they begin to negotiate an incredibly difficult thing in a marriage, which is he doesn't want to sit at home with Catherine. She needs support. She has no family. She needs support of someone day. And she says, I, I can't exist without love for a single hour, she says. But he wants to go out and conquer the empire and rule Russia with her. And also he's, he's a wild libertine and womanizer. So they begin to negotiate an extraordinary thing. All the way through? No, no, not at the beginning. No, not at the beginning at all. But as their sort of relationship begins to, they begins to burn each other up, they begin to argue. Because he's frustrated, stuck there like a sort of popinjay at court. And he's ultimately a guardsman. He's ultimately a great, great Russian imperialist, if that's possible, given what we know today. So what basically they do is, to cut a strong story short, is they negotiate an extraordinary open marriage where they rule together. He's indispensable. He's basically like her husband and Kozar, but they each can have young lovers. And that works extremely well, and in the most bizarre way. Is this explicit or only implicit? Um, it's implicit. So one of the amazing things that I discovered when I was researching this in their papers is it's a very, very weird arrangement. But basically, she has these young lovers in their 20s, these young men. He has his nieces and all sorts of young lovers, young female lovers in their 20s and teens. And so what they do is they get them to call them mum and dad. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> So, for example, her young, here, here's, this is Alexander Lanskoy. It was the family she craved. She wanted Lanskoy and others to call her and Potemkin parents. So to Potemkin, she usually referred to Lanskoy as the child, while Lanskoy was expected to call her Matushka, mum, and him, Batushka, dad. That is odd. So, and she was always missing Potemkin when he was away. Here she writes, 
you can't imagine how dull it is without you, Batushka. Come immediately. So they're always kind of looking because he's so entertaining. And one of the ways he seduced her was at her sort of dining society once. She, they were playing cards before they were lovers. And she said, what are you thinking about Potemkin? And he says, and he answered in a light German accent. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. And everyone went absolutely silent because he, because was, he imitating was imitating the empress. Yeah. So everyone went silent and looked at him. And this could be the end. And, everyone, and then she just started to laugh and everyone else laughed too. See, Peter the Great wouldn't have laughed, would he? No. He'd have been in the torture chamber at this point. Yeah. He would have punched him, gouged him. <laughs> the point is they now embark on their great um, project. They, they defeat the um, Pugachev rebellion and Pugachev is executed. They make peace with the Ottomans, as we talked about. And now he's appointed governor general of Novorossiya, a new governorate, a new province called New Russia, which may be familiar with you with today. And he goes to New Russia and he starts to build a new port in the new territories there. And he builds Kherson. On the front line today, yeah. And he builds Kherson. He founds he found a whole lot of cities in this new territory. Odessa. Odessa, Yekaterinoslav, which is now called Dnipro, huge city. Mariupol, where the Azov works was, which was destroyed by the Russians. Sometimes they were on the, on the place of Tartar villages. So, for example, Aktiar was a Tartar village with a natural harbour. That became Sebastopol, and that's where he built his 18th century neoclassical city, which became Russia's great naval base, played a huge part in the Crimean War and much and World War II, etc., etc. But what he did was he had to populate these cities. And so he did this massive immigration system where he he encouraged all sorts of people. Greek Orthodox coming in? Greeks went to Mariupol, became a Greek city. Thousands of Jews. Potemkin was the most philo-Semitic Russian statesman Isn't of all that time. Interesting? He loved Jews. He travelled all the time with his own rabbi, Rabbi Joshua Zeitlin. <laughs> That's and he amazing. he loved Jews. And in fact, Zeitlin said to him, we don't want to be called Jids, Yids. We want to be called Ivrei, Hebrews. And so to this day... The Jewish community in Russian is called Ivrei, Hebrew, rather than Jidi, which was the old, the very mm. rude name of them. So he was extraordinary. So he brought in all these people. He brought in Ukrainians. He brought in Cossacks. He, he was the grand hetman of the Black Sea Cossacks. He brought in Ukrainians and Russians, Poles, Greeks, Jews, Italians, Spanish, and he settled them in all these towns. And Sebastopol, in Sebastopol, he founds a new thing, the Russian Black Sea Fleet. So he does exactly what Peter the Great did in the north, Potemkin does in the south, and he founds these cities which are now sacred to Russian ultranationalism. And are the populations still that mixed Cossack, Tartar population you were describing earlier, or do they start to settle it with, with serfs from the north? Many Tartars stayed, but many also left for the Ottoman Empire. And the Giray family left for the Ottoman Empire, for the ruling Giray family. What's interesting was he did it bloodlessly, just as Putin did with his little green men. So in 1783, it's a great opportunity. Potemkin does it very cleverly because there's amazing opportunity for Russia to do this because the great powers are busy elsewhere. What are they doing in 1783? America. Right. It's the American War of Independence. Britain is very busy. It's just faced Yorktown. And France is also bankrupting itself, fighting for the Americans. 
but Sam can sort of clearing all of this space and all of these names that you've mentioned that could be in news bulletins even today. It's not easy to found a civilization and build. And it's even harder when you don't have access to, to water. So it's like sort of timber coming from Chernobyl at one point. And tell me about the Potemkin village, because I always heard that he tried to make it look a lot better than it was by doing these sort of facades of greatness and beauty. But they were pretty hollow and two dimensional and there wasn't much to them. The Potemkin village is a Potemkin village. It's a great libel, really, because it was spread by Tsarevich Paul, who hated Potemkin and said he was going to kill Potemkin when he succeeded to the throne. Uh, He spread the rumour that these were false villages. And the British press, again, spread the rumour and used, and the German press, who were very, very uh, uh, alarmed by Russian expansionism, surprise, surprise, spread the rumours that these towns weren't built and they were always, in fact, they were built. And in 1787, Potemkin arranged this massive state visit where Catherine met up with their new ally, Joseph II, the Habsburg Emperor. And they met in the Crimea and they viewed this fleet. And there was a complete fleet there, all built by Potemkin. And Joseph II didn't think that it was a, there were any Potemkin villages. The only people who thought there was a Potemkin was Paul, who wasn't on this trip. But it was on this trip that Potemkin sort of invented the modern state visit. Because what they did have was lots of local, you know, um, they had Cossack dancers and Tartar dancers and sort of folk scenes and things. Exactly the sort of thing that's bored statesmen to tears ever since, (laughs) um, you know, in state visits. And he he basically invented that spectacle, which we now think of, you know, every time, you know, every time King Charles III or or the prime minister goes somewhere, they're sort of, they have to sit through these kind of, uh, you know, these events. That's what happened. Seabag, two questions. First of all, We established last time that Putin has read your book and knows this history through you. Do you ever worry that the stuff you've written has inspired him to do some of the stuff he's doing now? Are you responsible for this? Well, first of all, I mean, Potemkin and Catherine would have hated Putin. I mean, they were aristocratic children of the Enlightenment who really, you know, who would have been appalled by the way he conducted himself. Um, the way that he rules, the corruption, the vulgarity, the ultranationalism, and they were, they were imperialists, but they weren't nationalists in the way that in the way that we see today. So that's the first thing to say. But secondly, Putin has apparently always been obsessed with getting the Crimea back, because Crimea contains the sort of sacred city of Sebastopol, home of the Russian fleet, all built by Potemkin. When he came to power in 1999, I just finished writing Catherine the Great and Potemkin. And so I immediately was contacted by people from the Kremlin. And remember, at this time, Putin was regarded as a sort of incredible liberal reformer, wonderful person. Tony Blair going to stay with the horses. Uh, yeah, Tony Blair said he was, you know, he was a decent person. George W. Bush said he'd looked into his soul and seen a decent person, um, all of these things. So um, I got this message saying, like, we, you know, we've read the book, but he doesn't, he doesn't read English. So while, we have it, while it's being translated into Russian, it was bought by a Russian publisher could you write us a short essay on how he took Crimea and South Ukraine and how he built the fleet in Sebastopol? How extraordinary. So, which I did, and I gave it to them. And then when it was in Russian, they went back and said, it's been read by a certain personage. This is from the minister of, the, the, actually the deputy minister of culture. And he came to me and he said, oh, it's been really appreciated. And we've been agonizing about who to use as a basis for this new presidency. But we feel we can't do Catherine the Great because you know, she's a woman, would Potemkin do? And so 
they were very interested in Potemkin. And th- then he said, you know, it's been read, the book's been read by, by this certain personage. And he would like to give you a present. So I wonder what the hell that was going to be. All off diamond. <laughs> I would have said all off diamond. I would definitely make a bid for that, Seabag. For a historian, the answer was the gold off diamond because he said, we're about to open the Stalin archive. Would you like to be the first to sit in it? Yeah. And so wow. I worked in it for a year with, you know, in my own room with kind of everyone helping me, bring me all these papers from Stalin. Unimaginable situation today. A dream. But then when I published the book, Putin hated it. Why? Because it's not very nice about Stalin. But he seems like such a reasonable man. (laughs) (laughs) I experienced the warm rays of Tsarist favour. I also experienced the cold wind of the tundra. And I was banned. So then I fell from favour with Putin. Can, can I just ask one other question about? Yeah, it? I'm absolutely. fascinated by this story. I've, not, I've never heard you tell this story before. Um, when you said you know you wrote you wrote it up and you gave it to his people, I mean, is this sort of like sitting on a park bench, passing over an envelope, <laughs> or do they come to your house like in a, in a car in an Uber? How does it work? I had two meetings with them. One was at Claridge's in England, right? And one was a Metropole Hotel by the Kremlin in Russia, and um, and I had many meetings with with Grigoriev, who was the Deputy Minister of Culture at the time, who, was my, who, who told me all these things, and who, uh, uh, who was a publisher as well as being Deputy Minister, and who published the book in Russia. So I really benefited from it because I had access to this Stalin stuff. But I later, when I wrote, came to wrote Young Stalin, I was told I had no privileges and no one remembered me in the archive. It was like that Soviet thing. Oh, God, what happened to them? Oh, that's well, they were all fine because they, they, yeah. just, they just obeyed orders. You know, when, you, when I had the Tsar's favour, I, I was given Tsar's treatment. And when I lost the Tsar's favour, they literally said to me, even though I'd spent a year in their company every day, they literally said to me, we don't remember that. I said, but you gave, I had my own special room. I was with you every day. <laughs> and they said, they said, no. You know, and did they remember. at any time try and pressure you, you know, no, when, when they were giving no. you access to say, look, we'd like you no. to say this, that and the other? But Nothing what's interesting is one of the reasons why I realized, I knew that, Stalin, that Putin was, there's a, there's a Freudian say, I knew that Putin was going to invade was he started writing these histories and started quoting Peter the Great and Potemkin and talking about them and Catherine the Great. And I realized that, of course, these were lands that had been taken. And I sort of re- you know, I went, I returned to the original conversations I'd had 22 years earlier. And, um, of course, Kherson, Potemkin is buried in Kherson because it was his first city in the cathedral, in St. Catherine's Cathedral. And so Catherine was, was planning, I think, to bring him to, to Petersburg, but he was buried there because he died near there. And so his body was still there. And so when they took Kherson, the Russians took Kherson recently, last year, when they retreated from Kherson, they stole the body of Prince Potemkin. Do you know where it is now? No, but the but the local head of government said, you know, we took the body of the sacred. They he called him not not the illustrious prince, but the sacred prince. And so you can see he's become a sort of nationalist um, banner. So they took the bones, which I'd visited because when I was writing Catherine of Potemkin, I was advised by the great expert, the great scholar of of Catherine's scholarship. Professor Isabel de Madriaga, who was a bit like Catherine the Great. I realized she really did think of herself as Catherine the Great, because when I went to his tomb, she said, would you lay some red flowers there for me? So anyway, they stole the body. And what I think they will do is one day they will just open, they will create a tomb for him in in Moscow. Where people can pay reverence. With the names of all these towns like Mm. Sebastopol, Crimea, Mm. um, Mariupol, Odessa, Kherson, that they claim. So... In, in these years, between 1774, 
1783, and then another war against the Ottomans in, seven, in, in um, 1787, after this great state visit, the Ottomans attacked Russia to try and get back their lost territories. And instead, Potemkin took command and they lost more land. So by 1791, they had lost what is now South Ukraine and the Crimea, and Potemkin had built all these new cities and founded all these new cities and founded this fleet, which were real. His enemies said he didn't build them, but the buildings are there and the cities are there and the fleet was there. So it was very interesting. He brought in foreigners. He had Scotsmen, Spaniards, um, all sorts of Germans, all sorts of fascinating kind of renegades were commanding his fleet and his soldiers. He stormed the city of Otchakov and he employed General Savorov, the most, one of the most legendary Russian generals who also is always quoted by Putin. So essentially, Catherine Potemkin, by the time Potemkin died, they had secured um, all of South Ukraine, Crimea, they'd built Sebastopol, they'd built a fleet, and Russia was a southern and near eastern power. Well, it's a good point to take a break. Uh, join us after the break. We continue with Simon Seabag Montefiore. Russia growing successfully, muscular, muscularly. Uh, what does the rest of Europe think about this? Join us after the break and find out. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. Simon, just before the break, you were telling us about Potemkin and why, you know, he is such a role model for Putin because of this very successful expert expansionism. What was Europe looking at at the time and thinking and doing at the time in response to this? Catherine and Potemkin were able to get away with this because all of Europe was busy fighting the American War of Independence. At one point, Potemkin actually offered George III, offered the British, a Russian army to suppress the American rebels. I didn't know that. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Which, of course, would have changed history, because, of course, the British were using lots of Hessian and German mercenaries, so the British would have a Russian army. Um, quite a thought, isn't it? But anyway, um, that didn't, obviously didn't happen. And, in fact, Russia took the opportunity to grab all these um, Ottoman and Tartar territories, and then the British tried to stop it. In 1791, a Chakov crisis where Pitt the Younger and Prussia tried to stop Russia, and they failed to do so. Is this the first time that you find the British, because obviously in the 19th century, this becomes a huge issue, yes. that, that Russia's seen to be about to engulf the Ottoman Empire, the sick man of Europe, the Crimean War. Is this where this begins? This is where it begins, Ochakov, the Ochakov crisis. And this is where it begins. And Catherine and Potemkin were on the edge of a European war against Prussia and against Britain, but they got away with it. But at the height of all this... Potemkin is galloping across the steps when he falls ill with a fever. That lovely opening scene in your book with him coming out of this enormous sleeping carriage. I love this. Yes, he's lived, he's lived this amazing life. He's always compared to Sardanopoulos. You know, he lives like a, literally like a, he lives a sultanic life, he travels with a moving palace and a moving English garden that he builds every night for himself. 
brilliant. <laughs> he sleeps with five of his nieces, which very shocking. An English days. garden means a beautifully arranged one, or or, yes. a, or a sort of William Kent natural garden that sort yeah, of it's very natural um, looking garden. It's a very natural, but he he had serfs carrying his garden with him, and they planted <laughs> it overnight wherever he stopped. Yeah, and of course they all had British gardens, which they hired from British dukes. So, I mean, Catherine the Great's garden, I remember, was called Mr. Bush, appropriately. And I think, <laughs> and I think he was the Duke of Northumberland's or the Duke of Devonshire's gardener that they hired at a vast salary, as you do. And, they, and he was obsessed with jewels. He sat around playing with diamonds all day. So he lived this amazing life. And when he was besieging cities, he built an underground palace. And he sat around with lots of his girlfriends around who were all... And his nieces. You know, well, they were his nieces, but his nieces, it was more than his nieces. I mean, his eldest niece, Sashenka Branitska, became Catherine the Great's best friend. And she's with him at the end when he's dying. She's in with his... him at the end and he get, catches the fever. He's achieved these amazing things. He's somewhere in Romania at this he's point. In, he's in, when I was researching the book, I, was, I thought it was in Romania that he died. But I discovered that it wasn't. I thought it was near Yash. In Romania, but when I got there, I found out his guts were there in that church. But actually, he died in Moldova. So I moved over to Moldova and found the spot. You have a picture, don't you, in the book of the of the death announcement? Yeah. Yes, because there's a memorial still there. When he died, he said, "Give me Catherine's letter. Give me the Empress's letters." And he had all her letters wrapped up with him all the time in a bow. And he got all her letters and he read them out. He had them read to him by his niece. And he sobbed as he knew he was dying on the steps. And an old Cossack watched. And as he died, the old Cossack just shook his head and he said, lived on gold, died on grass. Wow. Brilliant. <laughs> and, and Catherine the Great had a, had a small stroke when she heard that he died. And she said, she said there'll never be another Potemkin and they'll, they'll like will never come again. But she kept, went on with her young lover who was 22. She was 60. And he was called Platon Zuboff, who was completely talentless, Pop and Jay, and who led her to do very crude and stupid things, actually, and wrong things. I mean, for example, she finished the partition of Poland, but instead of keeping Poland with its independence, she just swallowed all of the rest of it brutally. Because Potemkin had wanted to be king of Poland and had planned to be king of Poland and to keep Poland as a Russian ally, but under himself and under his own family. So the empire ended. Um, at the time of the French Revolution, Catherine became extremely conservative. Because obviously she was worried that the same thing would happen. Yeah. She was worried that there'd be a revolution with, with her. She, she, was, she was disgusted by the revolution. By the way, one of the people that I said that Potemkin hired lots of foreign people to, to populate his cities. And actually, you know, one of the people he tried to hire was a young Corsican French officer called Napoleon Bonaparte. Really? He was also negotiating. He was obsessed with music and he wrote music, Potemkin. And he always travelled, as well as an English garden, he also travelled with an orchestra. And one of the people he was trying to hire was a composer in Vienna called Mozart. No. <laughs> so Napoleon and Mozart could have ended up in the... Neither of those hires came off. Right. But, but anyway, the point was that, you know, he'd achieved a massive amount in his life. Seabag, two areas that we need to look at, very important. The Caucasus, in other words, what is now Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan and northern Persia. This is leading on to where we'll be heading later in this series in The Great Game. It's, if you go today to 
Tehran, there are these enormous Qajar images of large Persian armies and large Georgian armies taking on the Russians. And the Russians are seen as these rather demonic figures in, 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 the, in the canvases. Is this during Potemkin's era? Yes, this is, this is really important. So the Iranians had basically controlled much of the Caucasus for a long time. And at various moments, they even co-opted Georgian kings to come and command their armies and, and fight in their armies. And there were times when their commanders-in-chief were Georgian kings and their harems were filled with blonde Georgian girls and thousands of enslaved Georgians, you know, filled the unhoused, the mansions and palaces of the Safavid and Qajar. Fat Ali Shah famously had a hundred legal wives. Was yes. So, so what happened was that as well as fighting the Ottomans, the Russians were now fighting the Persians. And at the end of, at the end of her reign, Catherine had a war with Persia. But just to go a, bit, a little bit earlier, in 1783, the same year, his, his Annus Mirabilis, if you like, Potemkin not only annexed Crimea, but also signed a protection treaty with King Hercules II of Georgia and Solomon II of Georgia. And this was the Treaty of Georgievsky, which made, was the first time that Russia had sort of claimed the Georgian kingdoms. But later on in her rule, under the useless Zubov brothers, that's her lover, Platon Zubov, and his brother Valerian. A an aggressive new Shah came to power. And this is the Shah that you know about, William, Agar Muhammad Shah. With his baskets of eyeballs. Who was the eunuch Shah. Yeah. He was castrated. He was the only eunuch to found a dynasty, which is quite a hard <laughs> thing to do, if you think about it. And he did that because his, because his nephew succeeded. But he was a wizened, tiny little high-voiced man who had been in prison after being castrated as a boy. And when he came out of prison, he led the Qajar to conquer Iran and to restore Iranian power. And one of the things he did was invade the Caucasus and take it back from the Russians. And Catherine was already occupied, worried about fighting in Europe and the French Revolution and Poland. So she abandoned the Georgian king, Solomon II and Hercules II. And Aga Muhammad Shah invaded Tbilisi, destroyed Tbilisi, and took back one, another of those great caches of slaves. He enslaved over 100,000 people, mass-raped women, burnt Tbilisi, and took back 100,000 enslaved Georgians to toil in the harems and the farms of Iran. And he was the one who, when he took a city, he, he ordered people to gouge out the eyeballs. And when he took one city, he piled up 80,000 pairs of eyeballs. Disgusting detail, yeah. And there are, there are travellers' descriptions from the generation that follows this of hundreds of blind people wandering around the bazaars mm. of that part of the world. You travel and you just see blind people everywhere begging by the side of the road, alive but unable to support themselves. Yes, and he was the one, he was also the one who, who, who put the, the molten crown on Shah Rock of Khorasan, the, the, the grandson, I think, of um, Nadia Shah, Shah, Nadia Shah. So anyway, the point was that Catherine finished up with this, this storming of Poland. Poland was inspired by the French Revolution and had rebelled and had been partitioned between the three great powers of Eastern Europe, Russia, Prussia, and Austria. But in the 1790s, her old lover, Stanislav Poniatowski, tried to launch a French revolution in Poland, the Polish revolution to expel Russian power. She crushed that brutally. She invaded Poland. She invaded. She massacred thousands of people in the in the, in the um, suburb of Praga outside 
Warsaw, and she annexed the rest of Poland. Poland then vanished. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the personal betrayal of someone who's an ex-lover who's been given this sort of King of Poland status. I mean, did she ever talk about, write about, or, or has anyone recorded what she felt about that betrayal? Yes, I mean, she was extremely irritated and infuriated by Stanislaw Poniatowski and saddened by him. And she had met him again on their trip to the south with Potemkin. He'd come and paid tribute to her in 1787, and he'd met her. And they'd spent a little bit of time together, very sadly, because they were both old now, mm-hmm. and they kind of had a sad, awkward meeting, and she was now empress, and he was now her sort of her tributary. Well, mm-hmm. when they'd met, she was, she, was a, she was a young married princess, and he was somebody's secretary. So it was an extraordinary mm-hmm. meeting. But yes, he did portray Russian power and tried to save Poland. Potemkin also had a different vision for Poland, but the Zuboff brothers were very, very crude, and they were kind of running things. Catherine was over six in her 60s now, um, breathless, enormously fat, unwell, mm. and in thrall. She said, rather disgustingly, she famously said, you know, with little Blackie, she called him, Noiro, because he was very dark, Platon Zubov. She said, like, with, with him, I'm like, a, I'm like a fly in summer, she said. I'm so happy with him. Because mm. he was 40 years younger, and she called him Le Noiro, because he was very dark. Mm. And... She just let, she promoted him to all Potemkin's positions, Governor General of New Russia. She was trying to recreate a Potemkin for herself, uh, and he just wasn't the same thing at all. And so we come to the end of Catherine the Great with some, some really kind of unpalatable imperialistic cruelties, which were, which were unlike the rest of her career, actually. Seabag, if you were a Ukrainian historian, uh, if you were Sergei Plosky or someone, who would yeah. you, what would you be saying about Catherine the Great, that she's a terrible, set a terrible template of imperialism, or how do they look on her? Yes, they would look upon her as, as one of the most voracious Russian nationalist imperialists, and that she had vastly expanded the empire as I explained, there's a difference between northern and southern Ukraine because the south, southern Ukraine has been Islamic territory, not Ukrainian at this point. It now became partly, Ukra- partly Ukrainian and later became totally Ukrainian. So when you go to Crimea, there are no Orthodox churches before the 18th century? or No, none. Yeah, well, I mean, would, you descri- would you describe it as a golden age for, for Russia? It was absolutely a, a golden age for Russia. But for the provinces, you know, Georgia, Georgia was betrayed by Catherine the Great. Poland was destroyed by Catherine the Great. Ukraine was conquered by Catherine the Great. The Crimean Tartarate was annexed by Catherine the Great. So, you know, as always with the Russian Empire, and this is why empire is interesting. The Russian Empire was a voracious expander. She added 200,000 square miles to the empire. She destroyed the, the independent kingdom of Poland and the independent Khanate of Crimea. She was a voracious Russian imperialist. She was also um, an astonishingly talented, often decent, often generous, often humane stateswoman. She was a reformer. She was an extremely generous person to her friends and lovers. She was always being ill-treated by her young lovers who always, always had affairs. And, mm. and she, when she caught them, she was heartbroken and, you know, um, until she fell in love again. <laughs> her, her reputation as a nymphomaniac or libertine is very unfair. I, I would say that she, she was a serial monogamist rather than any of the, I'd say Empress Elizaveta, her predecessor, uh, but one was much more of what you'd expect people expect to come from the great. Okay. So it's the end of her. It, it sounds as if she sort of loses who she is a little bit she and does. she's letting sort of inferior people like the Zubovs do things which are cruel 
and unnecessary and perhaps the younger Catherine may not have done. I mean, is that fair to say? I think that's correct. What happens? How does she die? Where is she? And, and what is her legacy in Russia? She's in her bathroom, shall we say, um, when she suffers a stroke. And it's November 1796. Do you mean in her bathroom euphemistically like Elvis? Yes. And she is found on the floor there. And she's so fat that they can't move her. So they kind of, they, she has to lie there for some time. And she's gradually, then they manage to move her. But she's there, she's there lying undiscovered for several hours, isn't she? Yes. And she lies there breathing heavily, um, obviously dying. And her son, Paul, comes to take control. And she dies on the 17th of November, 1796. And Paul immediately orders that Potemkin's bones be thrown out of his tomb. Um, he uses um, the Tarida Palace as a stables. Um, he denounces his mother and, and gets, um, gets the body of his father and buries them together. He makes the Orloffs march in the funeral of the man that they'd killed. So he has a joint funeral for, for Catherine II. But he doesn't kill the Orloffs. He doesn't kill them, and he doesn't kill the Zubovs either, even though he hated them too. He then does exactly what Peter III had done, his, his father, which is to offend everybody in a record time, um, <laughs> to have a completely inconsistent foreign policy, to go to war at one point against Britain, to send um, an expedition to take India from the British. What date is this? This is, this is about 1800, 1801, which had set off with Cossacks to take India but the point is that Russia is now pivoting. It's interested in expanding into the Balkans, into Europe. It's going to annex um, the Caucasus, which is which is the Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Armenia today. But it is also, it's taken Siberia and has reached the Pacific. And now it's doing... What about the, the Bering Straits? Because at one point they had to go into what's now California and, and, and through Alaska. Well, well, Peter the Great was the one who'd commissioned Bering to go to the Bering Strait and to find the Bering Strait, which he did. And they had then um, colonized Alaska, and they'd gone all the way down the coast of California to Fort Ross, which is right near um, San Francisco. That's extraordinary. There are still Orthodox cathedrals, aren't there, still standing in California, which were built by the Russians at this point? I don't know about that, but the, but they, they kept um, Alaska until 1865, until just, mm. after, just after the American Civil War, when... When Alexander II sold it, sold it for $15 million. But you did say that Paul was making the same mistakes. Paul made very much the same mistakes. He, was, he, was, he behaved, frankly, idiotically. He offended everybody. He, he had, he, he had um, aristocrats thrashed in public. He made everyone dress up in German uniforms, not the Potemkin uniforms, which were much easier to wear. He switched sides, made friends with Napoleon, almost went to, you know, fought Napoleon, made friends with Napoleon. He, he made friends of England, fought against England. And finally, he, um, he threatened his own children who were called Alexander and Constantine. You notice they had Greek names. And they had Greek names because they were planning to conquer a Greek empire. This was Catherine the Great of Potemkin had arranged their names so that they would have a Constantine was, was designated to rule Constantinople. And that was an imminent plan. That was not some distant dream. That was an imminent plan. The actual conquest of Constantinople came closest in 1877, but that's another story for a later discussion. But, but for Paul, we're still talking about Paul. Paul, in the end, threatened his own children, and this was a fatal error because they began to plot against him, fearing that he would arrest them. Uh, just as Peter III, his father, had threatened to arrest 
Catherine, and that had led to his coup. But before the coup, he sent um, an, a Cossack army to take India. And the, the point here is, William, for your great game, is this is really the beginning of the, this is the real beginning of the great game, because now they take the Caucasus and now they begin to look into Central Asia. Now, it's often claimed by people who write about um, the British advance into Afghanistan and, you know, which you've written about so eloquently, that this was all a kind of, that this, these were Russian, adv- British advances into, into Afghanistan were sort of out of sort of claims of a, of a fantastical Russian threat. But actually, the threat was very real, and no one who studies Russian history would make those arguments. In fact, they, they, they now, in the 19th century, systematically advanced through Central Asia, annexing some of the Khanates, uh, founding cities, advancing, sending more troops, sending those kind of the equivalent of Connolly and, and Barnab- Burnaby and all these kind of adventurers. Vikovic. And yeah, all these people in there, and then annexing them. So that by the 1860s, they have basically reached Afghanistan and they'd reached China, in fact, you know, in that it, it, they'd taken Central Asia completely. And so the next thing was Afghanistan. And after Afghanistan, as you know well, um, was Tibet and, and India, you know, and, was, and the Punjab, Punjab and Pakistan. Punjab. And Pakistan. Yeah. So the British were not being paranoid. And those viceroys, who we all regard as madmen for saying they should go into Afghanistan, were actually facing a real threat that wasn't imaginary. But that's another story. Which we'll be doing next week. But that pivot begins now. And let me just finish by saying, in 1801, the coup, which may have had British um, help and encouragement against Paul, was the cruelest coup d'etat of a failed Russian warlord and emperor of all of them. He was so hated, Paul, by the time he was overthrown, um, that his own children signed on to the coup. And his son, Alexander I, was downstairs. They crept into his impregnable castle that he'd built to be coup-proof. Uh, coup to be coup-proof. Coup-proof. Not so much. They burst into his room. They'd all been drinking champagne beforehand. And they included, <laughs> they were led by the Zuboff brothers, who we met earlier. They burst into his, um, into his room. He hid behind a, a, a tapestry. And they saw his hair, he famously saw his hairy feet. And they pulled him out. And in the resulting chaos, he was smashed in the head with a giant um, snuff box, a giant gold snuff box that smashed out his eye. They then jumped on him and sat on him and strangled him. And after they'd strangled him, they went crazy and stomped his head with their boots until it was almost mush. Then they went downstairs. But the the interesting thing was the coup was led by his own chief minister, General Mm. von der Parlam. And they then went downstairs to tell Alexander I. Now, Alexander I had agreed that his father could be overthrown, but not killed. But of course, this system, the Russian system to this day, and it applies to the Kremlin now too, is a system where where it's very hard to leave power and live. And so when he said, Alexander said, what happened? What happened to my father? They looked at him and they just said, your majesty. And he burst into tears because he realized that his father was dead. And he was the emperor that we are opening next week with Alexander and Napoleon. So it's a very good place to leave it. 
thank you so much in so many ways. We really want to do a, a name check of all of your fabulous books. So uh, I will start with the most recent, The History of the World. It's a, a, a brilliant book where all of these characters and so many more are going to be uh, introduced to you. I've got in my hands here the Romanovs, which I would recommend to anyone as a, as a, as a wonderful starting point. And then The Deeper Dive is, uh, is Potemkin. Catherine and Potemkin. Which is a monster of a book with yeah. close primary sources and years oh, and years of work. A marvellous monster. A marvellous monster. Um, it has been an absolute delight to have you. Thank you very much. Extraordinary indeed. sea bag. And, and, and my, literally, I could feel the hairs on the back of my neck yeah. rise. We were talking about Putin reading your book and being summoned by a certain personage. I mean, just what, how many get to tell stories like that? Thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun. That is it from uh, this week's Empire. Uh, so it's goodbye from me, Anita Arnon. And goodbye from me, William Durimple.